Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108. Yeah, it's that time of the week again. It's time for the Sunday paper review, and there is loads on. And we're joined by Kleena Foley from Off the Bench and lots of other sports publications, and also Sarah O'Connor, who's the head of sport of WH. Before we get talking to the ladies, we'll just do a quick run through of the headlines. Uh, we'll start with the broadsheets. And there's a mixed bag really this week. We have a great photo here of Connacht Munster. The, you can just see there the intensity going on. And that really was the rugby match we had last night. Not that I'm bitter at all that I was at the RDS. Uh, and then the Sunday Times has a brilliant photo of Rob Kearney actually in action as well. And we were talking earlier about how we have a real mix of experience and youth coming in there in Leinster. And it's great to see. And it just shows the procession line of rugby is very much in safe hands under Leo Cullen at the moment there in that part of the world. And also... Ulster fighting valiantly as well also thinking about all looking forward to work to lose next weekend uh, the Sunday Mirror here on the back page it's Jürgen Klopp you'll cop the title Jürgen this is when the mind games are beginning now after last Thursday's match with City and Liverpool of course everyone's saying now this is Liverpool's to lose which if anybody knows Liverpool knows that's quite dangerous again here's another one star on Sunday Silver Mare Klopp only title win is enough to silence doubters and we also I was in a picture of Gillingham we were talking earlier about the FA Cup and apparently Moyes going for Stoke an exclusive by Harry Pratt and apparently David Moyes would be interested in coming Stoke boss. Uh, we move on to what have I got here? We have the Irish Mail on Sunday and Reds on a roll. Carberry on fire as Munster power home against Connacht to boost confidence for a European challenge. And that scores it was Connacht 24, Munster 31. And top gunner, Classy United win again, but Solskjaer's real test begins now. Uh, we have the Sun Sport. Here and the Sun, they have Game of Drones. Or is that really interesting? You'd think the English especially would be sick of looking at drones <laughs> when you think of what they put went through in Gatwick before Christmas. But apparently Pep Guardiola is asking staff to train as pilots in film training because apparently it's easier to talk about formations and plans when you see it from an aerial view. And if you're not using it for domestic or fun purposes, you have to get a licence and that costs roughly around £1,000, which of course is going to cost Man City a fortune. And we have the Sunday World here and love on the rocks and that's Lovren he's becoming the new Carius in Liverpool being blamed for all their ills and wrongs and apparently he can cost them the title so already it seems like Liverpoolians are finding their scapegoat if the worst of the worst happens so loads going on and um, we were talking earlier Kleena and Sarah about there's a huge variety in the papers today and one of the stories that really caught everyone's eye and Sarah you mentioned there earlier was Saul Campbell he's in the mail on Sunday today being interviewed talking about Macclesfield yeah, super interview, I think, with um, kind of Saul, um, with Oliver Holt again, I think probably giving a perspective, I think, and that's co what can be so great about some of these features when you kind of see an angle to a story that you might have realised before. And um, Saul apparently, after many attempts, and despite, I think, spending the best part of seven years going through getting his various qualifications through the UEFA ranks, um, had really struggled to land a managerial uh, post before now. And so he's taken up the reins um, at Macclesfield Town. Um, yeah, and I, I think he, he, he kind of makes two points which are definitely thought-provoking. One is around he kind of felt that if he hadn't been a man of colour, he would have captained England for the best part of 10 years. And secondly, actually, that there's only eight, I think, managers out of the whole 92 in, in the league. So 
it's not certainly something I might have thought about before, but certainly something I'd keep an eye out now having read, having read this piece. Yeah, and Campbell has always been very forthright on the issue of race in football mm. and on trying to become, you know, to either be English manager or to be a club man or to be English captain or club manager. And he's never held back on it. And it's one of the things probably that, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, he's always been, they use the phrase, a controversial figure, do you know, or a divisive figure because he's never been afraid to say what he, what he thinks. So I think this is a really good piece as well, Sarah. Um, uh, and and particularly because of the Raheem Sterling stuff that's been there mm. recently. So yeah. that is raised in it as well, um, you know, and um, his appointment brought the numbers, the number of um, BAME managers in the league to eight as 92 clubs. Like when you look at it in those stark figures, it is interesting. And Macclesfield obviously is not glamorous. And he talks about and even though I think I think he was seen at times as being a flash figure, you know, um, you know, that stereotypical footballer. But uh, he talks and says, you you know, look at my, my upbringing is very working class and I'm it, what comes across in the interview with Ali Holt is that he's really he's really enjoying working at the level of Michael's. Yeah, Hotel. like I think here he goes, like I've had to kind of climb the mountain before and did it. And what's great about starting here, too, is that I know that I can do it. Bef- I can, yeah. I, you know, that I know I can do it because I've done it before. And he kind of talks here about, you know, he's setting up the goals for training. He's out there, like... He's getting his hands dirty, basically. His hands he's, dirty. he's not in there. Because the thing about Saul Campbell is we always had this image of a man who was too big for his boots, nearly that very notional about himself, big head. But, you know, this article shows actually, no, he's willing to do the graft and he's done the graft to get to this position even. Yeah, yeah. The headline is, is, is really, I suppose, nearly tells you a lot about how it, why this is worth reading. I'm like an iceberg. You don't know half the stuff below the sur- surface. And after years of being s- sneered at as a dilettante, Saul Campbell's new job is revealing his two- true character. And he says, um, you know, uh, I, you, just, you get the sense that he really is passionate about this. He says, I may look uh, cool and calm, but underneath I'm boiling inside with passion and ideas. So, you know, it would be really interesting to see. Um, obviously, I think, they, you know, they haven't had anything success, success yet, but it is interesting. And I, I, people are always interested in Saul Campbell for some reason. There just is something about him. And even just even the writing, it's written so well, like the opening yeah. paragraph, Saul Campbell is sitting in a Spartan first floor room at a youth club on the outskirts of Knutsford, which serves as Macclesfield's town training ground. He's wearing a blue town tracksuit. His hands rest on a Formica tabletop. From the window, he sees a flat roof covered with gravel and beyond it, a dirt green 3G football pitch. This is not much of a view. This is football's basement and Campbell is already thriving in it. Like the picture it paints just of, you know, northern England, dank, dour, January, wet, cold, dreary, misery, far, far away from the millions of Arsenal and And England. And isn't it emblematic of a lot of these teams that are in the FA Cup this weekend (laughs) that we were talking about? You know, if if they don't have the hope and the the chance to go and have a good crack off somebody and even to go and play, even if it isn't a home game, to go and play in some stadium that they're never otherwise going to get a chance in, then isn't isn't that what football should be about? So, you know, that description of it really reflects, I think, so many of the clubs that are playing in the third round of the FA Cup. That could be Rotherham, that could be Dover, that could be any club, yeah. you know, Yeovil, yeah. any of them, the way that, that description has been there. And we have this, you know, picture of we see the Chelsea's, we see the Man City's, and even the ones in the lower parts of the Premier League. But this is this is English football here, really. Yeah. And you also, know. Martha, do you know what? I think it's a really timely piece as well. Not only because it's the FA Cup, but because 
this is a really hard month for footballers mm. because it's the transfer season. Yeah. This is the month where, you know, we, 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 we always think of the ones who are doing well, but we know from the Irish lads going across the water how hard it is to make it now, how hard it is now this month for some of them worrying about are they going to get sent off on loan, are they going to get moved, what's going to happen. So it is a really, it just it, everything about it speaks of this time of year, I think, in football. You have that amazing match that we had during the week, you know, the, the brilliant, you know, fireworks of the top teams playing against each other and such brilliant quality and yet it exists beside this and wouldn't exist without this yeah, yeah. no it's a hundred percent like when you think of the kind of 92 clubs and we focus like 95 percent of the conversation must be about those guys the 22 or 24 is it in the premier league and yeah. you know and it is ultimately people's lives kind of down below and still their still their dreams and there's there's even there's some been some great kind of documentaries I think recently like there's been the one done um, on Man City but then more recently Netflix have just put one out on Sunderland which yeah. even again the contrast between the two is interesting and then you, you know that's only going to become I, more pronounced. And I think Sarah that, that, that that's what makes the other stuff good is to understand what's going on with those legs you know flying under the water the difficulty of life in the lower leagues and how great it is that you become a player you know even look at somebody like James Vardy do you know what I mean yeah and that whole Leicester story like that story wouldn't have been as great except for where they came from and that whole history and history of players like him and there'd be loads of those out there this weekend battling for their lives in fact there's a nice piece and um, I think it must be the Indo with um, Nigel Pearson very um, interesting nice piece about he's yeah. gone over to coaching Levan I think in yeah Belgium now, but yeah that's right actually talking about Jamie Vardy and when he had him in and he didn't start so well despite being a big signing for the club and kind of I'm still going to play you no matter how you no matter how you play so you know yeah, sort it out. John, <laughs> that's a Jonathan Norcroft exactly, piece in yeah. the Sunday Times yeah. with and it's actually a really interesting piece um, with Pearson because Pearson remember was was uh, he sort of left the club in left the club in some controversy because his son was involved in a controversy over oh. film sex acts and things so the, uh, while they were on a tour so he left Leicester in obviously in very controversial circumstances yet he talks with such passion about Leicester and also he's the guy who bought a load of them like he bought Mares for for 350,000 and he was sold for 60 million he's the guy who was involved with those so it is a really you're right that's a really good piece actually in relation to this as well it's well worth a read it's interesting too like when we mentioned Sunderland there and Sunderland till I die like I watched that over Christmas as well and I I knew it but I obviously didn't really know it until I watched it like a town like Sunderland football is everything and it gives you your light and it gives you a relief to go somewhere and it affects the town when you're doing well, it affects the town when you're doing badly, it reflects your self-confidence in yourself, your image of yourself. And I just kind of realised that the lower league teams especially, and I know Sunderland are unusual because they were up there for a yeah, while and then yeah, that, that yeah. began that disastrous Came fall back down. down yeah. Yeah. But um, the lower leagues especially, football and Macclesfield and all those clubs, the Salt Campbells mean the world to them. The, and the, the, town's, the town's identity is invested in that club. Mm. I mean, I think it's very like GA sometimes when you yeah. look at those lower leagues. Like the town is about, uh, is about that club. You know, that's who you follow. That's who you were born to follow. They're not this big multi-million identity which can afford to bring in players from all over the world. 
you know, that's where you see it, I think. And you're right, absolutely. That Sunderland um, documentary definitely gets that across. Yeah, there was one scene I thought was kind of interesting was where the, the CEO, um, John O'Shea, featured in and had obviously taken in some of the local sponsors and was kind of trying to explain that the owner didn't want to invest much more in the in the wage bill. And one of the guys is like, but you, you've got to understand that we can't change club or, yeah. you know, yeah. this is our club. So that's fine in one way for the owner to decide that. But like, just to your point, Maritrasa, just the fate of the football club affects our well-being every day. So, I mean, I think it, it just portrays that dichotomy between kind of, I suppose, sport and football, particularly as a business, which more than most sports it is. And then it's still ultimately, actually, it's it's what you know, people really care about it. it's a passion at the same time and, and how that gets managed. And we're actually talking about sport being business, no bigger business than the NFL. And we were discussing there earlier, it's in the Sunday Independent today, Neil Francis's article. Uh, we were just talking about this earlier. He's got a big piece. I'm just turning the pages here. I got a tweet earlier today from somebody saying he hoped I rustled the pages as loudly as Joe Malloy did. So I hope this is loud <laughs> enough now. A good we rustle. Have to rustle. You can't, you, can't, you, can't a, you can't build an egg, make an egg without rustling or breaking. Uh, well, certainly with the Sunday independent papers. We have the size to of it. It's the size yeah, of a small yeah. house. Uh, page eight and nine. Neil France's article. He's talking about the NFL and being a talented athlete in America comes with many temptations which not everyone can resist. Cleaner, you had strong feelings about this article yeah um sometimes i really like what neil francis writes and sometimes um i think i, I really like that he takes a different angle on things and this is a postcard from the usa and he's been in it, it looks like he was in america in september and at an nfl game and perhaps is out there still at the moment i, I wasn't quite sure on that but um so it, the, 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 the headline is lives on the line when players choose to walk on the wild side um being a talented athlete in america comes with many temptations which not everyone can resist so he talks about some of the high-profile NFL players who young NFL players who have got in trouble recently and who have really essentially you know killed their careers um, and I and that that is all interesting he talks about Kareem Hunt um, you mm. know the Chiefs the guy who was the big was the rising star and um, has has lost his um, he got he sacked about there was an incident in a hotel um, with a woman where he struck a woman and um, he wasn't sacked at the time, but then TMZ, one of the tabloid um, online uh, companies in America, got the video, um, security video of what happened in the thing, and then he was sacked. Um, so he talks about him, and he talks about, then he goes into detail about this Isn't guy's it interesting background. though that TMZ had to get their hands on the video before the NFL oh, did yeah, anything? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I that was a big source of debate. It's not that. so bad, it's not as bad as Ray Rice. Yeah. You're thinking like, Jeepers, it's just the way we're going well, now. And until people saw the video too, there was all kinds of, you know, oh, he was being hassled by the woman. And then the video came out and lots of people were like, well, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty aggressive, pretty violent stuff. Um, but he, so he, he, in talking about Hunt, he actually goes into Hunt's background and Hunt's background is, you know, so difficult. Yeah. You know, his family was rife with mm. um, crime and drug related crime. Um, his, his uncle was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, still serving a 23 year term in jail. Another one was doing a 10 year stretch for drug, drug trafficking. Um, he's a cousin serving time for drugs and gun. His brother has, he was in jail. His mother was arrested for cocaine possession and continuous DUI drinking um, under the influence. And his dad has been arrested 35 times yeah. with nine yeah. years in prison, I think. So, so yeah, for so, domestic so violence I, I, and drug related felonies. You know, and when you yeah. think about that and what chance did Kareem have? What chance, have nearly what chance to um, what chance does a player have with 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 such um, a, a, you know a tough background to make it 
sport is their way out. Sport is such a, a valuable commodity and such a, a way to go. But obviously Hunt got in trouble. Um, what I take issue with, I suppose, is some of the throwaway lines in this. And one of them is um, that that uh, he's talking later then in the same article with uh, about a guy called Josh Gordon, who plays with Cleveland Browns. And um, he uh, Bill, uh, he went to Bill, Belichick, you know, he ended up, I think, does he end up with the Chiefs or the Patriots? Mm, yes. um, so, and he's saying, you know, he had a brilliant manager there in Belichick, the guy who would make sure that, you know, anybody who had problems in their personal life, they'd be sorted out. But obviously, um, Gordon had uh, has had terrible drug problems, has a history of drug problems, and now his career is over at a very young age. But I take issue with lines in it, like, unfortunately, when you're dealing with a junkie, there's no basis for a working arrangement. This is what um, Francis writes. Junkies who happen to be talented athletes are the most worthless investment in a human being and the most pointless. I mean, I just think that's a very savage thing to say. It's such a dystopian view of people. Um, I don't like the word junkie anyway. Um, we don't we don't use anything as pejorative about people who have other addictions as the word junkie. It is it, it is loaded with with meaning. We don't um, call an athlete who's an alcoholic a junkie for an argument's sake or yeah. a gambling issue perhaps. You're yeah, not called a junkie, that's and it's saying. all addictions. Yeah. So um, I really I, I take issue with that because I think that it it takes from what is otherwise you know a very thought provoking and interesting article. And in another case, it, it, talking again, I think about Gordon later on and and the fact that he's lost his career, you know, a brilliant career because of drug abuse and he's out of the game now um, Francis correctly says what what part of last last chance does he not understand you know because when he when he came out of the game he said oh he had mental issues to deal with and and Neil Francis is arguing look you know you have to deal with addiction you can't be blaming mental issues on that you have to do that but then he says career over Sonny rehab for you and maybe jail when you can't pay the child support and again I think that is a stereotype that is just you know, I just think that's an unacceptable stereotype. Um, so, you know, there's parts of this that I think are really interesting and people will be really interested in, but there's other parts of it that I think are, are yeah, well, like I not think suitable. Even that, at a whim, he's, he's able to kind of identify kind of four of these stories in, in this article and no doubt, you know, there's plenty more of where these came from in American football. And even at one point he said, uh, talking uh, about Gordon there, there's no doubting his athletic ability, just his ability to stay clean for 17 weeks a season. And, uh, you know, I actually always find it quite interesting that in a way the American football season is so short. So, you and, know? The, and, and, um, their, and their careers are so short. And their careers are so short, given the kind of volumes of, of, of money involved. But I don't know. I think the fact that this seems to be like a running thread through American football in particular. Like, is there not an onus on the people involved in the sport who come from very different backgrounds from the ones that are depicted here and do particularly well out of that game to kind of to do more to 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 help? Well, these this is guys, it when the likes know? and in fairness, uh, Neil Francis does lay out yes, the work I, Bill Belichick did to try yeah. and keep him clean. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think that's just scratching the surface. It's looking at the symptoms. It's not looking at the cause, perhaps like there was uh, another piece. Um, everything looked good. You can't, though, reason with the junkie. And when New England had their buy round on November 20th, Gordon, despite his life and his career on the line, spent Saturday trying to ditch his chaperones. After an exhausting day, he managed to do it, contacted his local drug dealer and got bombed. There's no point in trying to reconcile his behaviour with what he had to lose. The next day, he issued a statement via his lawyers. I take my mental health very seriously at this point to ensure I remain able to perform at the highest level. I've recently felt like I could get a better grasp on things mentally. And it just strikes me that 
what about looking at how this man had gotten so addicted to substances that despite on weekly blood tests, weekly urine samples being chaperoned 24-7 nearly, that he still went to those lengths? Yeah. And he, he, I mean, as I said, there's a lot in this that is, that is good. There's just a couple of throwaway things in it that I don't, I don't think they're, that, that are correct to say. Um, and he, he also looks at Julian Edelman, the two-time Super Bowl uh, receiver for the Patriots, and he talks about him getting done for drugs, for performance-enhancing drugs. And so he, he's taking a few examples and he's looking at them and basically he's saying, you know, how easy it is to go off the rails, if you like, and why, you know, why people can't survive in this. But he talks then about the level of drug abuse in in America and not just in performance enhancing drugs or not just amongst athletes, but actually amongst, you know, we, we know this is the case, you know, where where um, social drugs in America and prescription drugs are being abused by, you know, very young children across a whole range of, in society. So it's interesting on that. He talks about this and then actually in the conclusion, he talks about, um, you know, uh, in, in America, um, one million, over one million people regularly take anabolic steroids. It's a 13.8 billion industry and close to 10,000 people die from side effects of misuse of these drugs every year. And he's saying Sport Ireland needs to be even more aggressive in Ireland about, um, you know, intervention in possible drug use. But the fact is that in Ireland uh, in 2017, um, if I remember correctly, in 2017, in the, the seizure of illegal anabolic steroids in the country, they found f over 450,000 units of illegal steroids came into Ireland last year. Now, only one athlete in Ireland or that year failed a drugs test. Most of those steroids are going into gyms. They're going into mm. social, um, social sport or bodybuilding or fit the fitness industry. And Sport Ireland doesn't actually police that. They don't. Oh, they don't have any remit on yeah. that. They have no remit on that on that area at all. So that's you know I think that's an interesting thing to point out because the level that the, that amount of steroids that went up by three hundred percent from the previous year. You know that is shocking. The amount of steroids that are washing into the Irish sport industri industry if you like you know not competitive sport necessarily and we don't really talk about that enough either I don't think. Well on that I think in the, the couple of the papers picked up about the 90 year old master cyclist yeah, I don't know if you saw in America. that in the US who I think has had to forego his, or his title has been stripped from him because he he you know, uh, return to positive dr drugs test and uh, like Blame what ninety year old isn't on drugs is what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're alive Surely at ninety, had a fair few, few issues. He <laughs> must have had to use. But uh, you know, I think I think to your point, you're absolutely right. Like the use of steroids does seem to be kind of slipping more into kind of n recreational sports yeah. even or or fitness maybe as um or, or you know the the two are obviously related but yeah it, and in the same way that social drug use is slipping into youth culture in America you know and he and he points that out you know the use of soft drugs and cocaine in America and the rise in that so they're all linked and there is clearly in America we know the levels of education the levels of poverty um, are higher in the African-American communities. So, you know, these people are at a disadvantage. It is, it is legitimate to say, why can't you change that? How do you change that? You know, wh why do people like this with such talent? How can you not protect them and bring them through the system? Yeah, I feel there's too much blame being put on the individual who has fallen down due to these constraints and issues and disadvantages in taking drugs. We all know taking drugs is bad. It's, it's illegal, you shouldn't be doing it. But I do think that perhaps this article doesn't look at the bigger issue as 
who is the bigger person who should be looking out for this? Is it the NFL? Is it American government policy? Is it federal policy? Yeah. And then, of course, it's very easy for us to talk about over there in America without looking on our own doorstep. Yeah. And this yeah. is where the steroids yeah. come in, especially. Um, like Clean has just given up the stats there. But I thought Neil France's article at the end was very good yeah, when he explains, really explains, you know, how, you know, people are taking insulin now. I didn't realise that was becoming such I a big thing. Oh and it goodness. makes complete sense. Uh, insulin has a half-life of four minutes, which basically means if I inject insulin five minutes ago and somebody comes to test me, you won't find it in my system. And he also says they're injecting, bodybuilders are injecting paraffin, yeah. into, uh, paraffin oil into their limbs. I've never, I've never heard that either before. So like, yeah, look, it's a, it's a very interesting read. There's some stuff I absolutely disagree with him on it, but I think that's the job of a good, um, a good columnist is to make you think, you know, yeah. sometimes. But there are definitely some things that I absolutely don't agree with the man in it. And I think, you know, it, it, it is easy sometimes to throw this, you know, accusations at somebody way across the water, you know, um, and one sometimes we need to be looking on our, at our own doorstep. So when we are looking at our doorstep and when athletes are being tested, if they are failing a drugs test, are we blaming the athlete? Are we blaming the system? Well, there's two. Well, there's a couple of things there. Yeah. First of all, the NFL, baseball, American football, they are professional companies and they run their own drug testing regimes. So they're completely different. So they, that would be like, uh, how, how could you even put it in this country, Sarah? But it would yeah, be like, why don't you have... You wouldn't. That yeah. would be like Irish rugby running its own anti-doping and That's testing its self, own players, self-policing self it. Yeah. They're self-policed. So we do. I'm not sure what the level of education is in those professional leagues in America. Yeah, no. Well, I suppose, we know baseball yeah. for years was didn't test, didn't seem to educate. Was full of. Was full I also of don't think they adhere to the same. Like they don't sign up to what? No, that's NFL what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. They're totally so separate. So it's totally separate, and I think sometimes even slightly different standards. So I think even in American football, they're probably coming from a place where some level of uh, drug use or chemical um, assistance was was tolerated or even part of the system. Do you know? Um, Definitely in baseball for years. In baseball for years, yeah. it wasn't yeah. it wasn't illegal in the context of the sport, um, or it wasn't banned. So they probably are coming from. A, a different place in terms of you know trying to educate people um, as to what is permissible or what isn't permissible or changing culture whereas um, we probably haven't had that in this country to the same extent across the sports. Um, Plus we have we have Sport Ireland which their their role is not only to test and make sure there aren't drugs. Their t their role is also to educate. Uh, in GA, obviously, there there's an argument to say they're they're not being educated well enough, and who's responsible for them not being educated well enough, if you like. But that's their remit. Their remit is to educate test, ensure we have a clean system. And the GA would say they're doing their bit. They're going to every club. They're sending out all the information. Yeah. But that's one thing. But who's educating people in the gyms? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, or the I person go, who's doing their own at home regime and you can order stuff online. Yeah, and that's the problem now. Online has made it a wild west where you can bring in, you can order anything you want online and that's the really scary stuff. Um, and, and that's why I think we should talk about drugs uh, in all contexts in sport, you know, whether it's, it's social and there's an argument to say, you know, you could make an argument to say uh, you shouldn't be testing for social drugs if they're not performance enhancing, what's the problem? There's a huge debate around this, I think. I think as well when people just see the pretty physique, they don't realise maybe the damage being done internally, like if you're taking perform any kind of drug, I mean, if you take Nurofen for too long, you can end up damaging your liver. And I think there's a real lack of foresight and long term thinking when you start thinking get the body beautiful now you know that kind of way and I'd, that's probably our own fault for not getting that message out there oh absolutely well there's so much out there even at the moment I think you even did a piece did you uh, about not don't getting caught up too much on the January fads I yeah. mean like yeah. 
you know, you're presented all the time with these images of these perfect human beings, but it's a bit like the iceberg comments. You don't never see what goes on underneath it. And, um, you know, there it is. I actually think the Wild West is a super description on it because the Internet has just kind of opened up everything. You can try to self-diagnose yourself with yeah. the, almost like with a medical ail- ailment um, often, you know, wrongly. But because there is so much information out there and then you have access to so much you know, product or substances or whatever you want through the internet as well. Um, yeah. Never mind the dark net if you knew how to get on that. But, you know, so it is, I think, kind of education and, you know, the importance of kind of running those decisions by people who are actually qualified professionals and stuff is, is also a really important point. Speaking of uh, perfect individuals, we do have to take uh, a quick break, but we'll be back and we'll be back talking about the most perfect individual to ever come into the studio, Paul Kimmage. Yeah, we're back here. Hope you're enjoying the paper review. We're in the company of Clean Foley from our Off the Bench podcast and oh, my losing my words, WH's uh, head of sport, Sarah O'Connor. We were just discussing there Neil Francis's article and just above it is Paul Kimmage's article, Clina, where he's criticising Ronan O'Gara for saying he's not going hard enough in questioning his sport. Yeah, um, and on the front page of the Sunday Indo, um, it said, uh, you know, you see Paul Kimmage, parents are wondering if rugby is right for their kids. And I thought, oh, brilliant, you know, Paul is, is going to go look in depth at, you know, the levels of danger in rugby, which obviously is a huge, is a, te- is a huge theme in rugby at the moment and is a theme in fairness that he, through, the, through talking about what's happened in France and uh, in the last few years, has really been banging a drum about. But actually what this turns out to be is him having a go at Rodan O'Gara. I think, I'd say challenging. I think the young kids nowadays say calling out, isn't that the phrase? <laughs> yeah. He's kind of calling out uh, Rod here, saying that um, he's given out because Rodan O'Gara, who does a really good call, in the examiner uh, weekly um, his recent column he talked about a few things um, but um, Kimmage is saying he's not being as he's accusing him really of not being honest enough in that piece um, so I remember noticing it and O'Driscoll covered a lot of things he talked about the Brian O'Driscoll revelations about the over medication in rugby that really you know happened on this programme and um, he talked about that a bit and that interested me that's why I went to read it um, but one of the things he said and it was close to the end of the article I remember he said was about his son he said my eldest son Aru is 10 now his first love is soccer and whether I want him to be a rugby player in the future is something I think about a lot there's a huge responsibility with the educators and the coaches to shape the game and create a vision for future generations rugby is changing so dramatically but if the future of the game is a pack of behemoths stalking the field and boshing their way to, to superiority then I don't know if there's going to be a place for Rua and I remember thinking that was a great a re- really a good phrase it was yeah. a boshing their way to superiority caught my eye and thought god that's a, good, a, a pretty good you know strong way to say it but as it's um, Paul who doesn't suffer anybody not calling things absolutely black um, black and triple times black he says this was wishy-washy pap uh, from uh, from Raj um, he says um, and, and he quotes then people like David Walsh, Mark Reason, um, Robert Kitson in The Guardian and Rory O'Connor in The Independent who have all in recent weeks talked about the dangers inherent in rugby about people getting bigger and stronger and the, and the, 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 you know, the eye gouging and or the, even the hard tackling concussion rates. So um, Kimmage's big message here is there's not enough about that area of it from the players themselves. For O'Gara and many others, rugby is still a living and some truths won't help pay the bills, but the game is in serious trouble and it won't be saved without them. Do they truly love rugby? Is the game worth fighting for? Do they want the kids to play? 
tell us what you really think. And I mean, that is always Kimmich's line. And, you know, that's why we love to hear what he says and what he, and, and what he writes sometimes, because tell us what you really think is an ongoing team with them. And I suppose he's, he's challenging Raj and saying, we really want to know more about this. And, but maybe and this players, is what Roger's, Raj really thinks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is the thing. Sometimes, like, what I like about Paul Kimmich's writing is that he won't leave a twos in it. He will say what he thinks and he will go to the heart of it. And sometimes what he writes is not nice to read if you're that person that he's targeting or for whatever reason. Yeah. But he, generally, he's not inaccurate. But at the same time, maybe this is just Paul Kimmich saying that Ronan O'Gara should be thinking should this. Should be saying this. Maybe Ronan O'Gara doesn't think this here. Yeah, no, and like, I, like when you read kind of that, that quote uh, that Kimmage says is wishy-washy for Mogara, in a way, you know, there is a huge dichotomy out there at the moment between, say, rugby as a professional sport and then even kind of, again, going back to our kind of League Twos, but the rugby that exists at a completely, you know, a different level, yeah. um, underage, even junior rugby, where, you know, you're, you're, at one level you're dealing with professional athletes who, you know, are you know, trained, they're, they're, they're absolute athletes, they're, they're getting bigger, they're getting faster, they're getting stronger, and they're actually being paid to train so they become bigger, faster and stronger. And yet, you know, that is one route. And then at another, at another level, you know, you do have, and, and the clubs would say they're struggling a little bit compared to what they did in the past, but you still have teams lining out all around the country for competitions like the Towns Cup or even AIL where, you, you know, go down the divisions. And you've kind of got athletes of, of you know, um, I suppose more recreational, certainly not professional. And, and, you know, maybe at one level it does seem that people are becoming to kind of trying to bash their way to super, super. And when I read that, yeah. Sarah, I did think, God, that's quite a strong thing for somebody of Ron Nogara's status to say, I'm not sure would my kid play. But but Kimmich feels he isn't going hard enough at it. And, and the, the headline is a bit confusing, I think, as parents are wondering if rugby is the right sport for their kids. Well, actually, that's Paul Kimmage saying that. Do you know what I mean? And your kids, you have young children, and, and yeah. do they, would you let them play rugby? Oh, or well, play rugby? I've, I've kind of, I've got, yeah, I have a, a six and a five-year-old, both of whom are down playing rugby, and an eight-year-old who gets dragged to the hockey pitch, but when she's not dragged to the hockey pitch, goes to play in the rugby training. And uh, um, that, yeah, that, I mean, for them, like, it's interesting because I remember actually Neil Francis once speaking at an event, and he said, "You know what? We have to recognise in Ireland actually sometimes that we're so lucky that we can able to go down to the sports grounds or to Thomond or to the RDS and actually see world class athletes playing." And he's like, "Don't take it for granted. You know, it mm. may not always last forever." And at the time, he was talking in the context of Brian O'Driscoll. But you know, these are the guys that came home from work one night to look at my, my six-year-old had changed the profile on, on his Netflix thing, which is another debate altogether, <laughs> to James Johnny Sexton Ferris, which I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to sm smile at. But the amount of six-year-old boys that think, and girls who think Johnny Sexton is... He's a god. It's an absolute yeah. god. My nephew as well, he's nine. He loves Johnny Sexton. You ask him, who's your favourite player? Johnny Sexton straight away. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you see, I think it, I like you know. I know where Kim, Kim is coming from. We all watch rugby these days. We see the hits. We feel guilty about even watching sometimes because the ferocity of it, the speed, the power, the ratio, the size of the bodies that are hitting and people getting injured. That's a valid argument, definitely. Yeah. But does that mean that rugby is dead? No, because rugby can be played from every level. The level from your children are playing. Well, on a social level, people even go out to play at weekends, even if it's tag rugby, whatever it is. So I think you, you can't 
you can't see a sport is in danger because the because the professional level of it has become really, really dangerous. You could say that about tons of sports. Horse racing is the same. What you have to hope is that the people who run it make the professional end of it safer, whether it is by by you know cleaning up the drug thing in it or changing the rules in rugby in this case and how they tackle whatever. So there's all levels of sport and I think sometimes yeah. I don't think I don't have children so I'm not sure Sarah and I'm not sure Mary trust what you feel but um I don't think it would stop me letting my kids play rugby if I had kids. But there are levels uh, when you get to a certain level then it becomes down to players what are they willing to do themselves and what is their what is their governing body doing to keep them safe and i think that applies across a lot of sports yeah and i mean i think you also touched there if it is a skill-based decision making game then i'd have every interest in being a rugby player and actually that probably goes back mm. um to sport and really it's actually you know, when you look back, it's probably the other things. I mean, some people get to make a career out of sport, but it's still, of playing sport, it's still a minority for the most of the rest uh, of them. And like I imagine my kids are going to fall into that group. It will be the friends that they make or the discipline or the teamwork or the commitment. And, you know, that could come from rugby. It could come from GAA. It could come from soccer. It could come from tennis or whatever. I mean, I think as a parent, you've just got to try to support them in the things. Well, I think first you have to kind of bring them to a few things and give them give them a, a range of or some level of sporting opportunity and then see kind of where the cards uh, full but you know again I, I see where kind of Kimmage is coming from but to your point uh, Cleon I think that's right you know there are so many levels at which you can play sport and obviously there have been three deaths in France and a 19 year old recently dying um, in a really tragic way it was a tackle I think he had he had a broken neck and, and had a cardiac arrest and he's saying you know why why aren't the players or the ex-players or the pundits why aren't they talking about this and that's a valid thing to say but yeah. I, I don't think you can be too, too also, sweeping in the general. He also questions, he brings back again, obviously, the Grobler story from Munster. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying, confessed steroid abuser has been playing for the province. How had it happened? Who had signed off on it? Has anybody told Joe Schmidt or Philip Brown? What had happened to the IRFU zero tolerance on doping? What message did it send to the Munster Academy? All very pertinent questions. Oh, and really? he says, yeah. questions O'Gara did not address. Now, are there questions for O'Gara, though? Or are there questions for Munster? This is what answer? I'm wondering. Yeah, and yeah, as well as that, our following our previous discussion about you know chronic drug abusers and people falling foul of systems that if we've all heard about what's been going on in South Africa should we be b blaming Grobler for this yeah, he's conf yeah you know he confessed he did his time he's but I don't know yeah, you're maybe there's a, well there, there it's it, it, is it there space for redemption be, yeah or it's, yeah exactly and that is a big question and I suppose it's funny we'll talk about it later but like Eric Cantona I still never forgiven him for that kung fu kick and yet, you know, <laughs> lots of people think that's, you know, that has, you know, it should be well forgotten about. I think we're all different in our levels of judgmentalism. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe it does, to be fair, or maybe take some people and like Kimmage himself has probably been rewarded for this, but to come out and speak about the system and how they made mm. decisions. He did that. Sarah. Yeah, because he they paid made a heavy price for it personally, professionally. Absolutely. Yeah. But sometimes it probably does take people to come out and explain how they ended up in that scenario um, in order for these kind of conversations to take place and maybe for it to be different for people in the future. And, you know, I think the Grobler incident, certainly not saying all the questions have been answered, but it certainly has posed or created questions that ultimately down the line, hopefully the Irish rugby system will be better for us. Well, you're a parent, would you have issues, for example, if somebody like Grobler came in speaking to kids in your school, for example, about rugby? Um, 
like I guess it would depend on the context if he was to come in and explain that maybe like tell his story from how he ended up making decisions that he shouldn't have made and say I'm so lucky actually that I'm still being allowed to play because it could have gone completely the other way well then maybe because I think sometimes it is helpful for people or even for your like even myself to kind of you know I remember once actually getting a tour of Mountjoy Prison from the then um, uh, warden or um, John Lonergan Lonergan, and he was like listen don't ever think that any of you, we're a group of law students, are like not almost a subconscious decision away from ending up here. Do you know any of us who have ever picked up a mobile phone in a car or sent a text? And do you know, do you know like it's a very fine line sometimes between making a decision that has implications that you would never think. And that's could if have. you have two parents to guide you. But if you're exactly. from an area with social deprivation, yeah. there might be no father yeah. in the home or yeah. no mother sometimes. It gets you can yeah. suddenly see how these incidents can perpetuate or sports it's very very hard to be perfect and i think that's a trouble yeah. with athletes we do expect them to be perfect we do and as journalists right. uh, definitely we're very judgmental and i know as i said i know i'm guilty of that sometimes i really do judge people because i feel so strongly about clean sport and about making sport as fair as possible for everybody who's involved at every level um, but it is hard sometimes you i, I know i'm too over over judgmental uh, the interesting thing for me though is that on the drug issue on the doping issue, I have rarely, and I covered um, sport for a long time, and particularly athletics, I've rarely seen somebody who was caught for doping doing anti-doping work in the communities or with children afterwards. I haven't seen that retribution, that giving back, that sort of thing. And like um, the the anti-doping, even in Ireland, the anti-doping, you can actually get your sentence or your, 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 your punishment um, lessened if you fess up and if you get involved in education things and I, I have seen very little of that. I wonder though is that because we kind of cast them out? Completely? Is that because we make pariahs of them? I wonder. Um, I've had to put my hand up there. I, go, yeah. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, just think, you, I think it's probably I think you, there's some truth in that Sarah. If there's one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is that life is not black and white. Yeah. And I think this is the thing with this article Again, I do enjoy Paul Kimmage's writing. I always seek his articles out. I don't always agree with them, but a lot of the time I do. And I think that's the issue. I think he's seeing Ronan O'Gara very black and white here. And I think Ronan is seeing life is a series of greys. And Paul is one of those rare journalists. He is a crusading journalist. Mm. There aren't many of them around. That's what makes some of his work so good, I think. Uh, But when you're crusading, very often you see only only the the wooden colour. You don't see shades of grey, um, because if you look at the shades of grey, they're mitigating, cir- mitigating circumstances. What do you allow? Do you take in all those other things? So I think that is interesting. I think it's a really good point you make. But I mean, the legal system sees shades of grey. I mean, how often have we sat in courtrooms? In my previous life, I worked in news, and court supporting was a lot of what I did. And a judge would always take in mitigating factors. He would say, "Well, you would, you know, you confessed early. You've done this. You've done that." Yeah. So the legal system takes it in. So I'm just wondering, maybe as journalists. Are we far too harsh on athletes? I think maybe sometimes we might I be. Think, yeah, and Sarah, you yeah. worked. You, uh, I know. Well, like I well, think law is law. massively kind of grey because you're in trying to achieve some level of justice. You're they you end up trying to take in 
all sorts of factors, you know, and even from and from all the individual parties that are involved in this in the particular circumstance. Um, like I actually remember our very first day of law, I was Professor William Binchy, who would be known for particularly forthright views, but he he actually stood up and told us that the sign of a really good lawyer was somebody that could argue eat both sides of any argument, particular you know, as well as each other. And I think that's that's that that's all you need to know, really. That's you know, you have to be able to be black, you have to be able to white, and, and merge the two, which is yeah. the grey. Yeah. So and sport, sport, even even with the VAR controversy in recent in recent months and even yesterday you know sports sometimes isn't black and white but a ruling has to be made to make it black and white if you like even though we all look and say well I'm not too sure about that if you like I think with doping I feel really strongly about it not being black and white because I feel it feel strongly that there, there, there can't be gray areas because if you do it gets it gets it's, so yeah. convoluted yeah you know and if you allow you know, in some circumstances and this and that and the other, you know, there's some of that now because because suspensions can be lessened. But I still think it has to be down to personal responsibility. Speaking of arguments, uh, one of the biggest arguments we remember from last year was when Naomi Osaka was playing Serena Williams. Uh, moving on from that, uh, Kleena, you found uh, an article that you found really interesting about Naomi Osaka. Yeah, um, <coughs> speaking of black and white, I was on the non-Serena side in that argument, um, very much on the non-Serena side you? in that. I was, yeah. I yeah. was very pro-Serena. Were you? Oh, I was absolutely not. I felt she was the person with power, with influence. I felt she was hectoring and bullying. I felt she used her power. And I just, I just don't accept, I didn't accept her side of it at all. I felt it completely overshadowed Naomi Osaka's um, success in winning the US Which Open. I think it's interesting in the picture this there. This is really, it's really interesting because here she does not look happy when you she think about was, it. She was crying at the at the at the presentation, and this is a piece in the Sunday Times by Barry Flap and the tennis correspondent, and it is um, the headline is Poison Chalice, and she's actually posing with a snake. Um, yeah. um, but it's um, it's about Naomi Saki. Thankfully, it's about it is about her, not about Serena Williams this time. It's about her, and obviously the Australian. Open is about to start, and um, they're looking. Is, am I right in thinking that's Australian Open? Yeah. They're looking at about um, yeah, looking about up. her and where she is now because she's she's um, she's just about to move into fourth in the world rankings, and she has made an extraordinary jump. She was seventy second last year, yeah. and also they're talking about the amount of um, women, the, the different number of women that have won um, majors this year, and about the state of women's tennis, if you like. So all of that, I think, is brilliant. It's brilliant to see the Sunday uh, Times featuring a female athlete like this and looking at her. But I have issues with one of the way, what some some of the ways it's written. Because Are you calling out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Am I calling out? Calling out very flat man here, um, because. Uh, it starts off talking about her progress um, and, you know, her obviously that's great success at the US Open. And she's talking about her goals for the, for the Australian Open. And then, out of nowhere, the next paragraph is, Osaka enjoys nice clothes and the ability to spend whenever the impulse propels her towards the shopping malls of her hometown of Boca Raton, I actually thought Florida. that was a very glib sentence just chucked like, in. What is it doing in there? And then you have a whole load of paragraphs about her indoor... It's like... 
All, all of her endorsements, all the money she makes is talked about. But what I really wanted to know is, how do you go from 72nd in the world to fourth? And he really doesn't address it until almost the last paragraph. Yeah. Um, and I would have liked to know a lot more about that. I'd also love to know, why is she playing for Japan when she moved to America when she was three, if I remember correctly, and has been born and reared, a reared in America, not born there, but, you know, could have declared for America. I'd love to know all that stuff. And the most interesting paragraph, I think, is probably thrown away at the end. Yeah. Um, and it's it, he's she says sometimes say a year ago I was making a lot of mistakes but since then I've been working with my coach Sasha Bajing who is a former employee of Williams and Carla Wozniacki yeah now that's what I want to know about and that's what female athletes should be asked about um, you know how did you know where did you get your skills from how did you make that jump who are you working with what have you changed in your technique all of that so I was a little disappointed delighted first of all to see an article about Naomi Osaka because I felt she was so hard done by and overlooked um, at that US Open. But I'm not particularly, I don't think this is a great example of it. Yeah, because I think professional female tennis is actually like, or professional tennis is fascinating. I yeah. mean, it's like, I almost think more than anything, it's it's like our modern modern day um, gladiators, you know, like when you see the two individuals out there on course in front of a big crowd kind of battling it out. And it's a bit like, I think, when you see professional golfers on the range, they can absolutely all hit the ball. It's just, you know, it's such a mental battle alongside mm. the kind of... Yeah, but they, and they have to do it on complete, and nobody can say a word to them when they're playing. Do you know what I mean? Tennis yeah. is very gladiatorial. You're right, it is. Um, but uh, and, and what did you think? Am I am I reading this wrong, Sarah? Would you no, just this article. I don't know why. Like I was interested to know more about like Osaka because. You know, I, I know a little bit, I think, particularly after that kind of US op Open final about the move from, um, you know, declaring for Japan and but having been kind of brought up in the States. But um, yeah, like, I, I kind of like to know a bit more. And I, this article, although kind of, you know, a, a feature piece doesn't really, I think, outline, you know, as I, I said, even the piece about her shopping, um, it would be interesting, you know, if, if, if that is a big thing that she likes to do, why is that? I mean, yeah. I, I think we yeah. all kind of know, like Venus is into her fashion and has gone down. Fashion design is one of the things she does, which is quite interesting, yeah. you know, and... Um, like he does, he does come into some of her technical yeah. stuff. So he says she could hit 100 mile an hour serves at the age of 16 and she's currently serving at 125 miles an hour. But like that's the stuff I want to know about yeah. an athlete, whether mm. they're male or female. I want to know, you know, how do they get that goal? I want to know how what she got into a final against Serena Williams to begin with when I'd yeah. never heard of her until yeah. that day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and how did she make such progress so quickly? And I have to say, so I went to my first WTA tour event um, last February actually and I, I you know I've lucky enough to be at Wimbledon once or twice before that but oh my goodness that new generation of females coming through um they just hit the ball unbelievably hard um so and you really hear it when you're at a live yeah, event yeah when you see it live see it but you know yeah. um we were watching I think quarterfinal stage so um you know Katna who's obviously slid down the rankings quite a bit last year that up-and-coming Russian player um Daria I mean unbelievable um the Wimbledon champion, um, Gabriella. And I think well. there's a really interesting narrative about women's tennis, which yeah. is why is Serena so good? And then why is a different person winning, you know, the Grand Slams? Um, and you don't get that with men's. It's like it's a criticism of the women's game um, that people are not consistent enough. And that's a fair argument. Why aren't they more consistent? Well, I would but always compare it to the Monster Hurling Championship. They're all so good. Exactly. It's just the good and, day. And, how, and how, how are each of them suddenly <laughs> pouncing and making that yeah. progress? So I think there is an interesting debate even there 
about about women's tennis and how the narrative that spun about it, I think, is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, and we should text say, sorry, come in here, actually yeah. speak about women's uh, tennis there, saying, loving the female presence on today's show. Happy Nolik Naman to you all. Hopefully see a bit more female presence on the show in future. That comes from Leah. And actually, this article shows that it is happening and it's probably happening a bit quicker in the last year or two that women finally are getting a platform that she's in the normal sports pages and aside from the line or two about her shopping and that's okay that's sometimes okay. yeah i shop yeah, I you shop so. we all yeah, shop yeah so do men though this is the thing i mean look at yeah i just <laughs> I, that's what i thought i thought i didn't think that was going to be in that article about i mean i have seen stuff in lewis hamilton's obsession with fashion and all the rest but they're yeah, usually he's very feature articles dressed. and they're usually feature articles in fashion magazines or something look what like conor mcgregor has spawned with yeah, his suits yeah, and stuff i mean yeah, there's yeah. very well dressed young men in their 20s now yeah. <laughs> and while we're just talking about that just to say to the listeners as well like it is it is not of and we should say like we have some really good young female male and female tennis players but Georgia Drummy yeah. from who's she she's in based in Florida at yeah. mm. Chris Everett and she made I think the quarterfinals at the Australian Open this year was it in doubles she certainly yeah. got to the very late stages in the US and the Australian Open one of them as a doubles player um, with an American partner and one on her own she's definitely one to watch in future let's move closer to home um, I know we always think of Gaelic games and stuff being a summertime pursuit, but here we are in early January. The Christmas trees are still up, unless you're in Clean Foley's house when there's no <laughs> Christmas tree at all. <laughs> but some of us, we, some people still have their trees up. But uh, Gaelic games in full throttle, and uh, there's loads in the papers this weekend as well. The mail is good, uh, is yeah, good today, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah. And, um, um, they, they do a very good job. I mean, first of all, rules, rules, yes. new rules, changing rules. They're all over the shop. And they're very black and white as well, aren't and they? And you know what? We all really actually want to go out and very few of us have probably actually seen them in action yet. So we are still curious about it. Dermot Crow has a good piece, I think, a very good piece, I think, in the Sunday Independent. Yeah. Um, because um, Kevin Walsh came out during the week, the Galway manager, football manager, giving out saying, oh, the pundits are driving this change. And uh, Mick Foley in the Sunday Times and Dharma Crow and also people in the in the mail as well say, sorry, it's not the pundits are driving the change. It's the it is the um, it's the research that the GA themselves have done. So Dharma goes through the statistics that we've heard a lot about the number of hand passing and games compared to ten years ago, the le- the little le- lesser amounts of kicking. So that's the re- recurring theme, isn't it, in today's paper? Yeah, though I think Joe Brawley actually did in his own article also mention that uh, some of the changes that didn't get through he thought might have been because his name was associated with yeah, which I thought was quite good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought that was a, I thought his article actually was very well written, and he makes some pertinent points. But yeah. at the same time, um, the argument is also being made: you can't allow pundits to make these rules. And I don't think they are. To be fair, I mean, David Hassan does a lot of work, and I don't this think anybody. In, yeah, in I don't think anybody can argue that uh, David Hassan is not arguing, is not working off evidence. Yeah. yeah. I'm no. not saying these rules were the answer either. I don't know. I mean, see, Wexford disallowed a goal last night for four hand passes in a row. Yeah, I know. And and like it, it is uh, the issues I'd have all very often with the GA when they change rules is they give players very little time to learn them, and they give referees very little time to to learn them. And I thought that again, Dermot Crow's piece is good because I think he he quotes um, Joe, uh, one of the referees, and uh, talking about that that look, we just have to get on with it, but it's not easy for us either. I was going to say, so I, feel sorry, I feel sorry for the referees. Do you know, it's, it's uh, hard enough. It's hard enough. How to be a referee? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I do sometimes question why anybody would consider this is a good idea that I'm going to try and stand here and regulate between thirty fully grown individuals at the speed, yeah. especially if it's hurling. And Joe McQuillan talks about it, he talks about just even in the early stages of um, of the McKenna Cup, like that they're that they are having to work really hard to get this right. But but Dermot Crow lays out all the facts and figures there. Um you know you I mean in the period since uh, in the period since twenty eleven based on studies of three hundred and twenty two championship matches, the average number of hand passes per match has gone up by a hundred per match. 
by 100. And then he goes into the other statistics and people will have heard them before, but they are interesting. In the 2018 All-Ireland Final, Dublin made 244 passes against Tyrone. Of those, just 54 were kick passes. Um, whenever there's change, there's always going to be a rouse. Um, and, and this is obviously going to run and run and run. And there will be games today where there's going to be controversies. But, you know, if, if, if the GA weren't trying to change, wouldn't we all be criticising, saying, well, you I know, think they're sticking the muds and yeah. they, won't, they won't try and change the game? They're obviously coming from a point, you know, they're like, it's 100% the GAA's viewpoint is to try to improve the game, you know, make it more attractive, etc., etc., but make it better for players. But are so, they treating the symptom more than the cause? I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we probably need more games, don't we, really? I'd say the administrators, too, are looking forward to yeah. there being a bit more commentary about kind of incidents and matches and for the league to start and for us all to get absorbed yeah, in that. Exactly, rather than giving out. We were already okay. absorbed, we'd be starved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a 95% of those, 96% of GPA players said they didn't want the change. Yeah, okay. certainly for the hand, Mani- that's real. Managers yeah. definitely always don't want change, but managers, particularly in football now, they're they are obsessed with retaining possession, not losing possession, and it's making game as little yeah. errors as possible. Yeah. And that form of coaching has created, definitely, I think everybody has agreed at this stage, a, a game of football that doesn't look as attractive um, and isn't as dynamic, maybe, as it was in the past. I don't th- I don't think some of these rules are going to work. I don't think th- they're necessarily... And some of Joe Brawley's suggestions, I remember thinking at the time, were really good. Yeah. <coughs> but they didn't get through. Um, and that's what we have. And also, the fact is, there's a meeting, I think, at Central Council on January January the 19th. Yeah. That's the crazy thing, that some of these things mightn't actually... Have bedded in yet. Yeah. But they mightn't even... They might even get out, yeah. They they might now decide, okay, no, it didn't work and we're not going to have them in the league. That's the madness, I think. That's a bit crazy. You've got players trying to learn new rules and then potentially... Somebody might turn around before the month is over and say, actually, no, we're going to go back to the other one. Like That is a bit, that's where it's difficult. But again, do people, which <coughs> is also kind of an underlying theme in the papers today, I think do people just want a competitive football champ or what they feel is a competitive football championship this year? And if that had been the scenario... But are any know, of the these rules going to give us a competitive <coughs> football championship? That, like, that's, that's the point. Like, you know, but if, if that had been the case and people felt that Dublin weren't kind of head and shoulders, would, would even the level of rule change kind of... Yeah, be be happening. Um, and there's also, Sarah, that there's also the kind of hypocrisy on all of our parts as well, where hurling suddenly was the sexy thing and everybody loved hurling and, well, wasn't hurling fantastic last year. But as Paul Rouse has been banging a, a drum about this and Philip um, Lanigan has a good piece, yeah. isn't he, today in the yeah. mail about this. It's still a closed shop. It's still a closed shop. Mm. There's still only a tiny number of... Now, you can say the same applies in football now, I suppose, as well. But, like, why has why what's been done to make hurling grow... You know, the weaker counties say nobody's really helping us to make more progress. Um, and that's the, those are the challenges. Hurling has challenges as well. It's not like it's perfect. No, absolutely. It does have challenges. But at the same time, isn't there some kind of magic in the air at this time of year where we shouldn't be looking forward to Gaelic games yet today? We have Waterford playing Clare and we have James Horan back in Mayo. And like, I know me wearing my Galway <laughs> hat. I'll always give Mayo the slag. You got to dig in early. But I heard in it fairness, I mean, I'm just so looking forward to seeing Mayo under Horan 2.0 and I'm obviously hoping to beat them in a kind of final. But aside from that... They're playing Leitrim today uh, in Carrick. Yeah. I'd say Park Sean, there'll be loads of curious people in there. Like Mayo people are great. They go to all the games. That would be packed today with Mayo people full of hope and they will be thinking of 
this is our year I'm and dying to get out isn't that what's amazing about no, it that's a beauty of sport and actually Eamon Sweeney even touches on that in the back page in the end of today because he and because uh, he's like oh this would be the perfect year I think he's listed out yeah all the things he'd like to see he'd like to see so and the world did something similar and, yeah. and, the, mail, and the mail and have the mail as well similar, you know as well and Shane McGrath who's from Mayo has an interesting piece about uh, James Horn today hasn't it you noticed yeah. that earlier yeah um, I thought it was really really good about how you know he describes how James Horn walked away from that team and that was a magical evening down the Gaelic grounds. Um, Unforgettable. I, mean, I know people say she's saying that because she's from Galway. No, it was an amazing evening. It was a spectacle. I've rarely seen the Gaelic grounds full and when they are, when that place is full, to the, I mean, you couldn't fit a child in there. And yeah. Mayo playing Kerry in a semi-final replay in Limerick was a magical day. They closed off the, yeah. the, there were no cars on the Ennis Road that day. Everybody walking up and down for hours before the match. I worked at that game as well, Mara Tassin, and people just could not stop. People were walking up to complete strangers and asked them, what do you think you're going to do? It was a magical, magical evening. Apart altogether from the quality of the game that followed. Oh, yeah. the game it was, was this, immense. It was taking the game there, doing something different, you know, and that's what we say, we give out about the GA. They did something that day and there were people whinging before and going, saying, oh God, we have to drive to Limerick. And afterwards, people talked about and they will never forget it was such a great game. game that I didn't mind I was driving back to Galway that night and I got caught in huge traffic and I left hours after everyone else because I was working yeah. and I got caught in traffic outside Gort and all the way up I was still thinking that was a great game yeah. and I came in home and I was still saying that's a great game I it's was a buzzing game from you'll it. never forget going to no and, it's and that is what Mayo do isn't it they yeah. give us these unforgettable and moments I remember Horn Martaz Mar that day I remember seeing him afterwards and the press, press conference afterwards was over and I saw him walking back over to the dressing room and I never saw a rarely seen manager as crushed I thought oh my god that guy has he's absolutely broken hearted and he's never going to recover and to see him going back I mean they say in sport never go back Liam Sheedy's done it he's done it I think they are going to attract huge attention this year because they've gone back and it really be interested to see what can they what can they get and that's why Tipperary making the final in Munster just the pre-season final against either Clare or Waterford and if it's Waterford tip there's a bit of bit of history there from the ghost goal last yeah, year. Yeah. Like even early season, we're so excited about that. But Shane's piece is interesting as a Marla Trasser because he says Horn is still going to be working with quite a lot of people. Yeah, like twelve over twelve of his panel are apparently over thirty years old, and that's not old in the grand scheme of things. But in Gaelic game circles, it's certainly getting into grey old man territory. And I just look. Who are we to question James Horn? He may have a few surprises in the bag that we have. We're certainly does. not going to see them today either. Yeah, He'll yeah, save yeah. them for later into the season, but. I, like you said, I, I I do wonder why did he go back? Well, that's, I, I mean, he's a thoughtful he, person. He hasn't he's gone thought back it through. Wildly. He hasn't gone back on a whim. No. He didn't leave on a whim that day either in 2014. No, but no. I think he he cares. Like there's an unbelievable passion in Mayo. Like they have to win this. They have to win this whole Ireland. I actually even think there's probably a fair few dubs fans underneath that he wouldn't begrudge them one at this stage. And they'd maybe. be the ones to do the derby, as in do the Seamus Derby, stop <laughs> the five in a stop row. Stop the five in a row. Can I, they? Do, can they do it? Like I from, looking from here, I would say no. I don't think anybody can stop the Dublin Five. No, simply because of the age profile and the skill and a lot of other things that are feeding in, and even the players at Dublin. But Mayo were still the only side to push them to the pinnacle. They were, though, that's and the Mayo thing. made it so hard on themselves. Remember those own goals and everything. Oh, oh. Mayo! Yeah, well, I think <laughs> like there's the, that's that's absolutely like the expert ob objective view. But I think that's ultimately uh, some element the beauty of sport that the dreamers can still hope and absolutely. you know. So back to the FA Cup thing. It is about that. It's about just believing that there can be some that we can create some magic here well Valerie um, will be keeping us up to date yeah. today with all the results there's so much going on today and I know the Waterford one especially and the Mayo thing people be looking forward to but before we wrap up the papers speaking of dreaming 
Um, there is now, funny enough, we tend to talk about the sports pages here, but in the <laughs> Sunday Times magazine, on the back page, if you're perusing it today, there is an interesting article about Eric Cantona, who um, dreams a lot now, apparently. He does, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who gets his regular Sunday Times magazine, I, I love their Sunday Times magazine, A Life in the Day, it's the back page thing, yeah. and it's just about somebody's life, and they've done it with, um, with Eric Cantona. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty yeah, extraordinary, you, right? He, they, he lives in Portugal now um, and uh, he talks about breakfast with his yeah. children at 6 or 7 a.m. I like to stand up and sing. My songs are surreal. The words come out automatically. To me, control is boring. Some people get freedom from drinking alcohol. I lose control when I sing. That's the start of it, Sarah. It's I think amazing. some people need the alcohol party. to lose control. Yeah. To sing. <laughs> <laughs> He's on my dinner party list now. Is Certainly. He? Well, like, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? He's struck. It struck me as an article as a man who'd been so constrained by control and rules as a young boy that he's still relishing the fact that he can get up now when he wants to. Yeah, so I did feel a little bit sorry for him when he said he had, he, it was terrible, his rules, he had to make his bed and if he didn't make his bed he had to pay a fine. Yeah, when he was in the academy in Marseille, academy, yeah. uh, I have very little sympathy for him, I have to say. Um, I love, there's a line that says, um, you know, football is like politics, it's all about money. My father never spoke to me about money. I had a passion for the game and he said, if you have a dream, then try. That's it, I know I'm a lucky man, I have everything I want. But in my heart, money still doesn't matter to me. I go in business class now, but if someone said, come back into economy class, that would be okay. And I just thought, wow, the entitlement, the sense of entitlement to this is absolutely hilarious. Oh, he my talks about freedom and you know, being in permanent transit in the world. Yeah, permanent transit, like he doesn't travel, he's in transit. But yeah. my favourite piece of it all is obviously you think Eric Cantona, you think obviously that Kung Fu kick. And it's 1995, yeah. which is nuts to think of. I, I was in primary school at the time. I remember it was all we talked about for weeks. But people think I lost my temper and got so many red cards. But it's a myth. The Kung Fu kick Cantona attacked a fan in 1995 wasn't me. It was a testosterone. <laughs> I don't regret it. I wouldn't have done it harder, but I wouldn't have done it any less either. And then turns into, in the evening, I love to cook. I love risotto at lemon. It's like an Edith Piaf, <laughs> and I regret Rianne. And that's what I, I, I never like about Cantona. He never apologised for it. And he got away with it in so many terms. And OK, he got punished for it. But like people afterwards, you know, didn't seem to regard him any less. I mean, I think somebody who jumps into a crowd and, and, and kung fu kicks a player should be banned for life. That's my feeling. Here's my judgmentalism coming out again because I think, oh my God, that's just the maddest thing in the world to do and so wrong on every level. If it, if it happened away from a pitch, you know, you'd be in prison or whatever. And I just couldn't believe it. But no, there's absolutely no regrets. And and his his brain process is just so interesting. Um, he's finishing up his day. We can finally get to the end of the day, Sarah. I'll let you read the end of the day oh, because yeah. it's so funny. Oh yeah, I do like the way he doesn't. He points out that he doesn't get angry or lose his temper with his children. Well, fair play to him because that's <laughs> not something I ever, man <laughs> I ever manage. But anyway, before bed, I like to get into a lucid dream. Then around twelve, I sleep straight until morning. I, I mean, what is a lucid dream? I would love. I, to know I'd love to know what a lucid dream, dream is. And I studied psychology, and I still don't know <laughs> what a lucid dream is. <laughs> like, but I just think it's it's just it's so brilliant. And then like. Then I go around it's 12, really I sleep mad. straight until the morning. And then he says, I'm up at six. So is that really sleeping straight to the morning? So is he having lucid dreams for six hours? I don't know. And then breakfast is crostini with butter and jam and green tea. 
at the table with my wife and children. I like to stand up and sing. And I just think of that scene, you know, oh, Step Brothers, yeah. when oh, they're in the family or in the car, <laughs> they have to sing in perfect tune. And this little article, Martasa, it does, you know, they all, it has those three little words of wisdom. It has this little section at the side of it every week, right? Mm. And um, I, I, I just think uh, his second one is advice I'd give. Receive advice like love. So Gallic. From a man who so I don't Gallic. think probably <laughs> takes advice from anyone. I'd say not. And I love as well this bit in the middle. My goal is to do what I love, art. If I can't express myself, for sure I will die. So maybe that's why he did that Kung Fu kick. If he didn't do it, he would have died. Perhaps. But it wasn't him, it was the, the testosterone. But it was the testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> it was the ultimate existential crisis. There's also, there's also, just the imagery of this, it's a very small piece. Um, if I, uh, in the middle of the morning, I need, I do some exercise, I need to. If I cannot go to the gym, I do weights around the kitchen for 45 minutes. Again. Then I go in my image little car, doing little weights. car. It is a little car, I don't know <laughs> the little car is. I'm desperately trying to imagine him doing weights around the kitchen. Yeah, I'm I think sure it's probably just means. as well he was a footballer because I wonder <laughs> what else he how might have done. What other, what, our, our creative, obviously, yeah, he's got into acting, but yeah, how would he survive in any other industry? I just, I just find it like, Eric Cantona, of all people, like you can just pick quote after quote after quote and on their own they stand up as brilliant because they're Eric Cantona, like the words of wisdom. Best advice I was given, Johan Cruyff said you have to anticipate and see everything before you receive the ball. I apply it to life. Yeah, and we wish, wish, uh, what I wish I'd known, when you meet somebody, it is because it is the right time to meet. It's just so... I just have more questions. I just want to sit down with. Them. I want to bring him over for dinner. I know this, this <laughs> well, is that's my point. She's, she's going to have him in her, in her you know, dinner party you dream to have. And well, I just love to have him there, sir. I just love to see. Clean is so excited. She's dropping her microphones dropping her now. Mic, at the thought <laughs> of bringing Eric Cantona in for dinner. It's just that uh, and my one of my favourite lines as well. I mean, they're all favourite lines. But another reason I like Portugal is that I'm not from there. <laughs> I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I think that's a really telling line, isn't it? It tells you everything. But I mean, yeah, it it's just, it's, it's just, it's great. If you're, if you're looking for some entertainment and also a little bit of strange depth, it's the only way I can describe it. Do pull that article out. It's in the Sunday Times magazine. It's the last page, the back, a life in the day, they call it. And, um, and I think they should do a week with their account. <laughs> yeah, oh, Lord, absolutely. Definitely people would be pulling out the quotes of like the seagulls and the fishermen or whatever. Um, just on, on that thing of liking to be somewhere where you're not from or whatever, there's two good articles in the Sunday Times today. One is on Tygburn and the other is on Marty Moore. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Walsh and Peter O'Reilly did them. And they're, I think they're a really good read. Um, you know, I love Sunday Good Sunday Features because both of them talk about how by going away from Ireland to be, you know, that they that they weren't thriving in the environment they were in in Irish rugby for a variety of reasons, and how going away made them better, and how they came back. So I think they're worth reading. Yeah, and a super one about our temp in Boulder. We spoke about um, Christopher mm. Sloan and his journey from Swords to Sweden. Where's that? Uh, it's in the Mail. Mark Galler, he's Mark, great. Yeah, for Mark Galler for getting the. Yeah, this guy is from Swords or somewhere, yeah. I think. And he won a medal at the World 10 Pin Bowling. I'd never heard of him last year. There's so loads of stuff in all the papers today. You yeah. won't be bored. And it's this time of year, you're always wondering what can the papers have. But um, it also, just worth mentioning very, very briefly before we go obviously, there's, every, there's stuff in all the papers about Liverpool and Man City. But I think my favourite comment of it all comes from Tommy Conlon. I love how he writes anyway. But in the Sunday Independent, he does a great synopsis piece. It's only a few paragraphs long compared to some of the opuses in the papers. But he says the, the last line, something along the lines of, I don't have it in front of me, but I took a note saying, it's all getting rather Brexity for Liverpool. Forget about Europe. Think of nothing else but battle for England. 
I think I it's a good way of appreciating leaving home but coming back and appreciating <laughs> what home is for. Exactly. So um, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up the paper review. We've filled our time. Thanks a million, ladies, for coming in. Uh, Kleena Foley from Off the Bench. I know you're going to be staying with us for the afternoon. And Sarah O'Connor, the head of support at WH. Thanks a million for giving us your insight and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So we're just going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108.